Um, I've recently finished reading the autobiography of Fergal Keane. Probably remember he was a BBC South Africa correspondent during the days, final days of apartheid. And in his uh, autobiography, beautifully written book, he relates an incident which took place while he was cutting his teeth as a junior uh, reporter on the staff of a regional newspaper in Limerick in Ireland. He was assigned uh, to investigate an incident where some African students had attempted to enter one of the city's top night spots and they'd been prevented at the door. No blacks here, they were told. And Fergal King, then, with one of these African students, laid a plan to expose uh, this practice and these attitudes. The plan involved Fergal King queuing behind these black students to uh, witness, to record and photograph um, a repetition of this, this uh, injustice. And the plan worked. An article was uh, duly written and published. Uh, in fact, the plan worked so well that the city was thrown into, into turmoil, into uproar. On one side, right-minded people were appalled at this example of blatant bigotry in their midst, whilst on the other side, um, advertising colleagues at the newspaper muttered with anxiety about losing the valuable advertising trade from the, from the night spot. And some people in Limerick actually revealed a, a mean, narrow-mindedness which was all too easy to find in Ireland and, and in Britain at that time and sadly now, I guess. Well, the pressure began to build on Fergal Keane. Influential advertisers began to side with the embarrassed night spot owners and threats to the vital advertising newspaper income began to make the water pretty hot for the young reporter. Eventually, the national press got to hear about it and Questions were asked by, the, by government ministers, a Nigerian ambassador got involved and rock bands began to cancel gigs and bookings at the night spot. And, and the, basically the upshot of all of this was a humili humiliating climb down for the, for the night spot owners and a massive feather in the cap of young Fergal Keane. Well, just like, for, he, he, I'm going to get there eventually, just like Virgo Keane, Daniel had upset some pretty influential people by simply standing for the right thing. And just like uh, discriminating against folk on the basis of their colour was altogether wrong, so equally wrong was it to bow down and worship a mere man whose breath was in his nostrils. But unlike Fergal Keane, Daniel could not rely on newspapers, government ministers and foreign ambassadors to get him off the hook. Couldn't do that. All Fergal Keane had got to worry about if the worst came to the worst was going to be looking for another job. Daniel had the prospect of a violent death. Well, what had he done? Well, we can read, we've had it read to us, haven't we? He so distinguished himself as this outstanding administrator, this top minister among the triumvirate of top ministers in King Darius' government that it's become the king's intention to, to promote him still further. And this glittering success has mightily disjointed the noses of, uh, of the top tranche of uh, the, the top brass, if you like, of King Darius' civil service. And they're motivated by jealousy. And they start to plot 
Daniel's downfall. And they manipulate the king to legislating into such a way, in such a way that uh, Daniel's universally acknowledged devotion to his God will bring him into conflict with the king's edict. The king doesn't see the trap, which is duly sprung. And this king, although he's hugely powerful, he himself is a prisoner. He's a prisoner of the constitution of the Medes and the Persians and he hasn't got any option but to condemn Daniel to the lions. And he's thoroughly upset about this. And in his consternation, he expresses the wish in this bizarre situation that the God who Daniel continually serves will protect him. The night passes and he spends it without sleep. And then come daybreak, king checks out the den. Well, has God done it? Well, of course he's done it. Was there ever any doubt? Well, actually, yes there was. Because in a similar predicament, under Nebuchadnezzar's lunatic and despotic rule, the the three friends that we read about in Daniel chapter 3, they tell the king that their God will deliver them from the king's hand, but even if he doesn't, they still won't compromise their faith by worshipping the golden image that was set up in the plain. Chapter 17, Daniel, verse uh, 17, Daniel chapter 3, what, does, what do they say? If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But... Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There was clearly doubt in their minds as to whether or not God was going to show his hand and save his servants. And through history, the facts are that God's people from time to time suffer. Last week, Brian... um, stressed to us the importance of reading the Old Testament through, I think he put it, New Testament spectacles. Is it spectacles or goggles? Eyes, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I thought it was goggles, but it sounded a bit like a welder, so I thought, it must be spectacles. Anyway, I got, got that wrong as well, never mind. Anyway, New Testament eyes. So, Hebrews talks about Daniel. What do they say? Hebrews, very, very interesting book on the subject of Daniel. Chapter 11, along with including Daniel as a hero of faith, details their afflictions. Chapter 11 of Daniel, verse 32, says, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouth of lions? That's Daniel, isn't it? Quench the fury of the flames, the three friends, I guess. Escape the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back to life, raised to life again. Others were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. God does not always rescue and deliver his people from physical harm. Well, here, in 2007, we might not be facing threats of life and limb because we are Christians. 
you know, you've got Paul. He encourages Timothy to pray. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, he says, For kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. A peaceable life is a very valuable thing. But you can't get away from the reality that if you're going to live for God, it won't help your popularity. Now there's medics here, lots of you, and you'll be painfully conscious, I'm sure, of the pressure that exists to comply with a godless agenda in the, in the whole area of abortion. Now, I don't know very much about medicine, but I know a little bit about business. And uh, there's sometimes an assumption in business on the part of the godless company director that mendacity, you know, lying, dishonesty, they're tools of the trade in pursuit of the contract, the deal. And the crucial thing they'll tell you is not to overdo it. Not, not to overdo it to the point where you get caught. And all of this is pressure. So, the big question this morning is, Haddon Robinson, the big, the big idea, the big question for this morning is, in the face of pressure from a godless world, what is it that will enable us, like Daniel, to confront this pressure, maybe the prospect of suffering, and remain faithful to our God? So what is it that's going to do that? And Daniel is showing us here and in other parts of the Bible the one thing that can keep us, as it kept Daniel faithful, is the relationship that we have with our God. Well, what about this relationship? Well, it would be possible to say a lot of different things about it. In the first place, it would be completely legitimate to spend quite a bit of time this morning talking about how constant it was. It kept short accounts, long periods of silence and non-communication and absence. They weren't features of this, of this relationship. Three times a day we read, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Very constant. And I guess we could, again, legitimately and profitably spend a lot of time talking about the priority that it had in, in, um, in Daniel's life. Not even the, the threats looming from the plotting satraps and their allies relegated its importance. We read, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And it was non-negotiable. Daniel didn't conclude that while he was under this particular threat that he'd put his intercessions on the back burner. Um, I have to be honest, while I was preparing for this, um, I asked myself how I'd have reacted to such a threatening situation. And um, the truthful answer is that I would have found a way of doing such prayers as I wanted to do, you know, on the sly. We could also say that, uh, and we could spend a good bit of time, I'm sure, talking about how Daniel's relationship with God defined him. It was the first thing that people thought about and mentioned when his name came up in verse 5. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. What I'd like us to concentrate on this morning, 
and spend really the rest of our time thinking about is the, 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 the fact that this relationship had an eternal dimension. What, um, you might ask, gives us the right, or me the right, to draw this conclusion from this passage? Well, it isn't, it isn't immediately obvious, but if you turn over into Daniel chapter 7, um, and have a look at verses 9 and 10, Daniel gives us a hint that he actually does believe firmly, strongly, in, in resurrection and a final reckoning. In verse 9 he says, And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In his account of his dream, Daniel depicts the final analysis of the thoughts and actions of everyone, of all, before the only judge who ultimately matters. And by comparison with his awe for this God, Daniel's fear for these pathetic little satraps and administrators would have been insignificant. As, as uh, New Testament believers, we, we have every right to derive our understanding of what motivated Daniel from our New Testament. Going back to Hebrews chapter 11, Daniel was commended for his faith. I'm putting the word Daniel into the, into the, into the, the text. Daniel was commended for his faith, yet he did not receive what had been promised. God had planned something better for him, so that only together with us would Daniel be made perfect. You see, for Daniel, getting rescue from the lions was not the pinnacle or the final victory. Neither, actually, incidentally, was, um, was, was seeing his accusers come to a, to a bad end. The writer to the Hebrews is very clear that final victory and fulfilment looks like this in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Covenant, And I, you know, I can't help hearing sort of echoes from that quote in Daniel, Daniel 7, sort of popping up in Hebrews chapter 11. Thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him, the court was seated, the books were open. You know, if you were marking an exam, you'd, you'd, you'd have a feeling that these chaps possibly might have been copying each other's work. But anyway... There we go. You see, um, when I was at school, um, I did have one or two sort of brushes with authority. Um, but um, my wife Mary, on the other hand, um, led an utterly unimpeachable life um, during the whole time she spent at um, boarding school 
except for one. <laughs> and um, I've, uh, I've sought and, and gained to have permission to tell you this story. Um, the story where, the, the school where she was um, for, what was it, I guess five, six, seven, I can't remember, a long time ago, had, it had a Methodist foundation and um, a rigorously enforced rule of teetotalism. You know what's coming, don't you? Um, on the last night of uh, her last term of her last year, she became involved in a midnight party at which cider was consumed. You know, little thimbles, you know, like we have coffee out of. We're not talking about rolling drunkenness. This is just a small amount. Anyway, I believe this, this event took place in what are called um, dormitories. And anyway, the party was, was discovered and the uh, shamefaced mis- miscreants, including my dear wife, were paraded in front of this bristling headmistress. And the girls were told that had it not been for the fact that they were on the point of leaving, that they would have been expelled. Of course, the reality was that this headmistress no longer held any, any sway over the girls, that the period of her power was over. And that's what the girls were celebrating next term. <laughs> the next term would see Mary in another school far away from this uh, menacing Methodist headmistress. And uh, you see that yeah, was what emboldened these girls to, to, to flout the prohibition. I haven't got anything against Methodists, by the way. But anyway, well, the point that I'm trying to make here is that Daniel's regard for his God was not limited and, and, and defined by term or by time. You know, he had, he had trusted and devoted himself to his God through the reign of, of several potentates, and at least one of which, as well as being all-powerful, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, showed definite signs of being completely loopy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus gives his disciples clear guidance. He says, in 28, Matthew 10, he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And just, and just in case that we think that um, this, uh, this dimension of eternity only applies to sort of life and death situations, Jesus broadens the whole the whole principle to, the whole, to, to all of our lives. In, in, in Matthew, again, he says, and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Three weeks ago, um, we were looking at, at uh, Daniel 3 and Graham described to us um, this uh, threat as he described it uh, posed to us by, by pluralism, this idea that all and any road leads to God and he pointed out the, the incompatibility of this philosophy with simply living as a Christian, as a child of God. And I want to say as well this morning that just as, it, just as incompatible and just as corrosive to our enjoying God is this widespread humanistic outlook which effectively denies the reality of resurrection and limits all horizons to this life. You see, Daniel's persecutors belong to this school. If they could engineer Daniel's death, that would be mission accomplished. 
They wouldn't suffer any longer by comparison with this diligent, able and honest man. And they didn't fear any, any resurrection, they didn't fear any final judgment. And the idea that this life is all there is has survived remarkably well. And it's even if, uh, infected the thinking of Christians actually from the beginning of the Christian era. And you find Paul contending with this. He vigorously opposes this notion in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians um, 19. He says, uh, I've got that reference wrong, but he makes this point, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Christ has been raised, Paul trumpets, and consequently we will be too. During the 1970s, um, the regime of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge were responsible for the most horrific period imaginable for millions of Cambodians. The Christian church had grown rapidly and had uh, attracted the displeasure of the authorities and huge numbers of Christians were condemned to hard labour and summary execution. And you might have read Don Cormack's uh, excellent book, Killing Fields, Living Fields. And um, it was very uh, touching. I actually cried when I read the passage I'm about to read to you, and I don't make any apology about it because it, it displays the faith demonstrated by uh, Cambodian believers who truly grasped the eternal life that was offered to them in the Gospel of Jesus. And the account that I'm going to read you describes how this Christian teacher called Heim uh, and his wife and children had been uh, forced into these labour camps and they were obliged to toil in the rice paddies. It's quite a long quote, so please bear with me, but it's, um, it's quite moving. Unmistakably, through the tremulous glare of the early afternoon sun and his own lightheadedness from the back-breaking labour, Haim knew that the youthful, black-clad Khmer Rouge soldiers now heading across the fields were coming this time for him. It was the hour when they always came, these brutish servants of Anka Lu, the organisation on high, dispatched to cull yet more of Cambodia's grovelling minions lingering in this particular twilight zone of the nationwide death camp. Leaning weakly against his hoe for support, itself ironically the primary instrument of execution Haim watched their easy, menacing, unhurried pace along the paddy embankment. His throat felt dry, an uncomfortable, uncontrollable fluttering gripped his bowels and his knees threatened to buckle beneath him. But he remained still. Haim was determined that when his turn came he would die with dignity and without complaint. Haim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon. They were the old dandruff, bad blood, enemies of the glorious revolution, CIA agents. 
they were Christians. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath a stand of friendly trees. Next morning the teenage soldiers returned and led them from their Gethsemane to their place of execution. The, near, the nearby Viel Somlap killing fields. The place was grim indeed and bore many gruesome signs of a place of execution. A sickly smell of death hung in the air. Curious villagers foraging in the scrub nearby lingered half-hidden, watching the familiar routine as the family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then, consenting to Heim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother and children, hands linked, knelt together round the gaping pit. With loud cries to God, Heim began exhorting both the Khmer Rouge and those looking on from afar to repent and believe the gospel. Then in panic, one of Heim's young sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding bush and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad but to allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here, momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted, and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now we are ready to go, Haim told Khmer Rouge. But by this time, there was not a soldier standing there who had the heart to raise his hoe to deliver the death blow on the backs of these noble heads. Ultimately, this had to be done by the Khmer Rouge commune chief who had not witnessed these things. But few of those watching doubted that as each of these Christians' bodies toppled silently into the earthen pit which the victims themselves had prepared, their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by their Lord. The rapid news of such as this, of certain Christians boldly bearing witness to their Lord in death, was gossiped about the countryside. Eventually these reports were brought across to the refugee camps in Thailand and not always by Christians but by typical Cambodians who until then had despised the Pwok Yesu. For Daniel, for Haim and his family Eternity was real, and the God of eternity was real, and their relationship with the eternal God had set them free from the fear of man. In John chapter 3, verse 16, known so well, stated so simply the price God paid so that this dimension 
can be mine and so that this dimension can be yours for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life what's your relationship with this eternal God the world around us outside, everywhere else along with the eagles in Hotel California tells us that there is no more new frontier we have got to make it here Jesus is offering eternal life Daniel made it his own make it your own we're now at the end of our series in Daniel and I was wondering how we could conclude with a couple of lines to encapsulate the essence of what we've seen in the life of this extraordinary and this faithful man I want to close with some verses that were written by Nahum Tate who was the poet laureate at the end of the 1600s and along with adapting Shakespeare he was well known for versifying the Psalms and as a boy Ironically, during the same period when Hyman and his family were standing so bravely for their faith, I was growing up in a lovely little country chapel in Sussex. These lines from the Metrical Psalm number 34, um, they were engraved in my memory. O make that trial of his love, experience will decide how blessed they are and only they who in his truth confide fear him ye saints and you will then have nothing else to fear make but his service your delight your wants shall be his care Amen let's pray shall we our gracious, our loving and our eternal God we want to uh, confess that before you uh, we, we don't place our trust in you as we should and that we allow the values of the world around us to influence our thinking we pray Lord that you would truly give us the faith and the trust to rest on you that uh, we may be empowered to witness for you that we may not be in fear and imprisoned by the fear of man but that we may truly trust and rest in you as our eternal God and Redeemer we ask this for Jesus' sake Amen